You're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Manchester United celebrate their first trophy since 2017. How much credit should Eric Ten Hag take for their development and what an impact Casemiro has made in their midfield? We'll also be talking about Newcastle's future, what the defeat will mean for the rest of the season and the years to come. We'll discuss the pressure on Graham Potter once again after another negative result for Chelsea. Should Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang be part of their starting lineup from here on out? And we'll examine some big results towards the bottom of the Premier League uh, with West Ham United winning, Leeds United as well, but defeat for Southampton and Everton. We'll also tell you who Harry Haddock is. This is the game. Hello and welcome back to the Game Podcast with myself, Hugh Wisencroft, alongside Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark, and Tom Roddy, all in the building on this glorious Monday morning after Manchester United claim a first trophy since 2017. Long overdue. It's a good way to get people to switch off immediately like you. <laughs> what a day. What a day. What I, a day, thought, I thought you'd be going for the whole cool woozy approach that you've been going for this season. This is not, this is nothing to get excited about, but it sounds like you've, you've maybe still... Is there a cool no, no, no. woozy? Still, still, genuinely, still drunk from last night? No, 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 I didn't even drink. Genuinely, this is what happened. I woke up on Sunday morning, I was philosophical, I said, you know what, even if we don't win this trophy... Everything that I've wanted from Manchester United so far this season, I've had, as you all know, I wanted a team that was harder working. Absolutely, we got that. That showed, you know, that they loved the shirt and respected the supporters, brilliant supporters that the Man United fans are. And we got that. And we got a plan. We have a footballing plan. We have a manager who can react to um, issues within the game and change a game. And it's all going so well that a bit like the conversation around the title race, I don't want anything to ruin my mood. And I thought, you know what? If we don't win today, it's not going to kill my mood. I'm not going to allow it to to enter the thoughts that Man United are not having a good season or they failed in any way because everything that I've wanted has come to fruition and we're building towards something great over the next few seasons. And then... I saw the Newcastle fans in London on Friday and Saturday and on the way to the game on Sunday. And I was like, I'm not having these beat us. Absolutely no way. So you got baited into fury, uh, uh, basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah, three days of them taking over London, swarming everywhere, singing their songs. You know, I was like, Do you know what? These guys think that they are going to be ahead of Man United over the next few years. It turned into a power struggle. The old money versus the new money, even though Man United are going to have the new money soon, the newer money. <laughs> the reality of the situation is, I was like, do you know what? No, we need to keep these guys down, okay? And I like the Newcastle fans as well, but it just got to me. And so by the time the game kicked off, I was like, we've got to win. We have to win. You know, it suddenly flipped on its head, and I was like, we just cannot lose. So I was delighted. Before we get into the football, which we will, so don't listeners, don't stick with us and Newcastle fans. There will be some analysis, I promise. You, you were there. We, we we weren't. What 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 did that kind of atmosphere that you've talked about over the weekend? You know, I was walking around London on Saturday and was like, my God, where where are they all going? Turned out they were going to Trafalgar Square. Square. Yeah, yeah. But did that kind of filter into the ground? Because Sky Sports, there was a lot of like panning to the Newcastle fans. And it kind of felt like it was their day. Did that transmit in the stadium itself? Like that kind yeah. of feeling of it being a Newcastle home game type thing? Um, it didn't feel like a Newcastle home game. But what it felt like was, and you felt it throughout, it, it meant more to them. Mm. You, you felt that inside the stadium. Um, you know, the Manchester United fans, they all had their scarves. And, you know, the songs and the sound was brilliant. The sight of the Sea of Red, if you like, was brilliant. But before the game, you know, as we all saw, the black and white stripes that were made by the Newcastle fans, the sound, the unison of their scarves. Um, even at the end of the game, even though they knew they were going to lose the last five minutes or so, they all had the black and white flags and it was just absolutely incredible from them. And they made the atmosphere really at Wembley what it was. And it was superb. You know, you had to be out there, you know, kind of half an hour, 45 minutes before just to soak it all in because you knew it was going to be special. And, and they made it. They they did make it. And you just hope they get back there again. And, you know, next time they lift the trophy because it would have been absolute carnage in London if Newcastle had won. You know, they were right up for it. And, um, you know, I, th- I think it was kind of a bit of a junction for them in that they felt as if it was a great opportunity to win a trophy. But they, as fans, are still feeling like, you know, with it being a 24-year gap, 
when will be the next time that this happens. But I think for a lot of the neutrals, you know, even Amanda Staveley, who was in the same box as me, she was like, we'll be back. In fact, she was saying, we're going to win the Champions League, we're going to win the Premier League, we will we will deliver what we promised these fans. I think for the fans that I met on the Tube and stuff like that, they were thinking, you know, it's been so long and it might be another 24 years before we're back. I don't think that. I think Newcastle are going places. I think they showed in that final that we can take them quite seriously, particularly in terms of the Cups over the next few years. So, yeah, I mean, it was a great day. Loads to still talk about. If you missed it and you don't know what we're going on about, of course, the Manchester United claiming a first trophy since 2017. Victory over Newcastle United in the Carabao Cup final at Wembley. It was Casemiro who broke open what was a pretty tight, tense, even turgid affair early on. Um, very few chances really in the match. He scored after 33 minutes, heading home Luke Shaw's free kick. And it was two, six minutes later, after Sven Botman deflected Marcus Rashford's shot slash cross out of the reach of the Newcastle debutante, Loris Carius in goal, who wasn't too bad on the day, to be perfectly honest. But yeah, as I say, it was a game of few clear-cut chances. Um, it wasn't a classic. I think we can fairly say that Man United, though, were worthy winners. I think so, and it's interesting to hear you talk about some of those Newcastle fans and also mentioned that you thought it was a kind of bit of a tense and turgid game. I would agree. I don't think it was a game high on quality football particularly. And I do. I, it was interesting to hear you talk and that's why I asked you about that kind of atmosphere in the stadium because it felt like a kind of calm, experienced Manchester United side beating a slightly frenzied, manic Newcastle side at times. And obviously that's fantastic for the fans that they were like that but it did feel a little bit like the players had got a little bit too wrapped up in the day and the moment. I think, you know, Bruno Guimaraes, who's a fantastic player, slightly embodied Newcastle just being a little bit off on the day. He looked a little bit injured as we, you know, discussions around his fitness and things, you know, flying into challenges, whipping up the crowd, but not actually playing his brilliant game, which Newcastle need if they're going to beat teams like Manchester United in big, big, big games. And then to contrast that for Manchester United, you have... The big, the big guy, the big game player, Marcus Rashford delivering, and you have the superstar Casemiro just absolutely bossing everything. I thought his performance was absolutely exemplary and kind of a wonderful example of how the way we have this snapshot consumption of modern football is absolute nonsense. You know, before he came to the Premier League, we all thought he was this kind of s housery midfielder who played for Real Madrid and kicked people and just sat at, sat in DM and you know wasn't much else to his game well, DM very modern yeah exactly <laughs> do you know what I mean like whereas he's absolutely box office he's complete Rolls Royce and is scoring goals as well for Manchester United it actually reminded me a lot of um, the Zlatan Ibrahimovic transfer to Manchester United in terms of that kind of lifting a group of players and just being so superior and Zlatan himself had a big game in a Carabao Cup final when he basically took United to a win against Southampton in a kind of similarly tight game I just thought he was superb but it did make me think that it was a slight shame for Newcastle players I don't know whether the guys agree it just felt like the the occasion had almost overcome them a little bit and it stopped it stopped them playing really effective football to beat United yeah it's interesting you say that Tom because <clears throat> the 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 day the, the morning of the game uh Rafa Varane um did had done an interview in the week and Johnny Northcroft did it in the in the Sunday Times and I, I hadn't been sure who was going to win the game and I read that interview and I thought oh man United will win it and the reason is because even though out of the two squads you had three players who had won a trophy in English football uh, De Gea and Rashford on the United side and Joe Willock on the Newcastle side even though that was it the Man United squad was so much more experienced. Rafa Varane had had played in I think twenty one major finals and won eighteen of them, including four Champions Leagues, one World Cup. And Johnny's intro to that to that interview was uh, Rafa Varane being asked, "How did you pick yourself up after winning the or after losing the World Cup final in Qatar?" And he thinks about it for a little bit, and then he says, "Well." It's a slightly easier when you've already won one. <laughs> so, Varane, players like Varane, players like Casemiro, it, it doesn't surprise me to hear Tom describe Newcastle as a bit more frenzied because they don't have those guys who had been there and done it before. This game was always going to be billed as a 
beginning for for both teams, whoever won it, because mm. I, d- I do think Amanda Staveley is is right in saying they'll be back. I think that was why the Newcastle fans weren't quite so downhearted after the game. They were, they were, they. I wasn't there, Hugh, but um, from what I was listening to and hearing, they stuck around for for. Whereas usually at Wembley, it's this bizarre feeling where half the stadium empties, doesn't it, after a final. It sounded like a lot of them stuck around. And that's because I think they do believe this is still a beginning for them. It just wasn't quite liftoff. What were your reflections? Yeah, I agree with that about being like a landmark. I view, viewed it as a landmark for both teams. I actually almost lean towards it being more of a landmark for Newcastle. I think some of the reaction this morning has been over the top. <laughs> like... I'm not in any way diminishing the job that Ten Hag's done. He's done a brilliant job, primarily in instilling discipline and clarity in a squad that looked like it was it had to be torn apart. Um, but they beat a kind of a, a, a developing Newcastle side. Not like it's not it wasn't Arsenal, it wasn't Man City, it wasn't Liverpool, and we've we've been here before. Like Louis Van Gaal won silverware, Mourinho won silverware. Uh, finished second in the Premier League Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was at the wheel remember that like we've been here before the future is only whether uh, you know the, what, what can tell us whether this is a landmark or not and it does feel different because of the control and the sort of coherence in their play it's diff- it does feel different but I think people need to kind of take a little step back I don't want to be a downer here he has done an amazing job but some of the things I'm reading about this being the start of a dynasty and stuff like People need to calm down. Yeah, I'd agree with that. People need to calm down. I'd agree with that. Um, I think, look, maybe it's maybe people are computing, you know, other things into that. You know, if there's a huge injection of money, if the likes of Kylian Mbappe come, then maybe it's the start of a dynasty. Maybe they are reading too much into some of the other stories rather than the game. Well, part of, part of the problem I think that people need to calm down is because I still have do not have the confidence in that the dysfunctional element elements at Manchester United. Are completely cleared away oh, no. that would make his job harder, not easier. Yeah, so yeah. Ten Hag is clearly like an immensely capable coach and person as well. Yeah, his, yeah. His, his personality is kind of has become more and more impressive in what that's done to this Manchester yeah. United team. But there's still a lot going on in the background yeah. at Manchester United with the sale and whatnot. So his job could be harder, not easier. And that, when you're challenging against some of the other clubs in the Premier League talk of a dynasty is well well ahead of the t- of time. Yeah, I actually messaged a Man United mate um, after the game and I said, what makes this actually quite remarkable is that I still have absolutely no faith that the people that run the club know what they're doing. Like, I, I actually don't, you know. <laughs> it's weird. Still the same owners. All right, a lot of the people who were at the club kind of 18 months ago have left the likes of Ed Woodward gone now. But actually, the people that have taken over, you know, aside from the fact that they were able to secure transfers for the likes of Casemiro, you know, you don't yet know whether they actually... Not hugely imaginative. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's been brilliant. We were all kind of, you is he going to be another Schweinsteiger? Everyone was like that. Mm. Everyone thought, Mm. we're we're not sure. Yeah, he's a hugely classy player, but he's he's surpassed our expectations, exceeded our expectations. And then other people, you've got Mike Martinez, he's brought brilliant nastiness and edge and whatnot. He's gone back to his old club to get him he's gone back to his old club to get Anthony as well mm, yeah. there is still nothing much that tells me that Man United are a new club they have a new very capable manager yeah. and he's signed some players that have worked out and bear in mind Frankie de Jong was the big target they ended up with Casemiro so it wasn't even the first choice and he's been absolutely influential and he was brilliant on the day but um, yeah I think that's that. you're, you're right You know, if we're going to talk about a dynasty there are lots of questions to be answered I, I agree with everything you've said, and you know we've talked on the podcast that, about Manchester United not being necessarily that good. You know, and you've referenced the kind of managers before, but what crucially, and this is almost a cliche, but winning a trophy buys him that bit of time to now be the next phase. You know, he made them solid. He's given them a spine. He's brought in the players that you've just referenced that have given them a bit of solidity, a bit of nastiness, enhanced that group. Up players like Luke Shaw, say, who's suddenly one of the best left backs in the world at the minute, I would say. He now signposts it with a trophy. It's almost like a kind of checkpoint in, like, say, a computer game when you reach a certain (laughs) point. We just passed the first boss. You know what I mean? I'm being serious. You know that even if you cock up after it, you're never going to go back any further. You get to pick up Mm. where you left off. He's got this now as a trophy. He's, you know, they've got the celebration pictures. They get to put up a few more pictures around the training ground, maybe, of like them winning a recent trophy. Fine, it's only the Carabao Cup, but it means that, say, say they finish in the top four and win a Carabao Cup this season. Say next year they go a bit loftier, 
but only end up finishing in the top four and don't win a trophy. He still can say at the end of next season, say 18 months from now or whatever, I've won a trophy at Manchester United. It's part of a bigger project. So I agree with everything you're saying, but the trophy buys him time to now do the next phase that you're on about, bring in some more elite players and give them more of an identity. This is like his kind of checkpoint moment. It's interesting you mentioned that identity because I was going to talk about it. Might as well come in here and say that we we have to remember, although Eric Ten Hag deserves huge credit, the first couple of games were absolutely atrocious. And that is because Eric Ten Hag tried to play a totally different style of football to what Manchester United have been doing since. And you wonder if that's the dream state, you know, because in that second half, honestly, Manchester United, sequences of above three passes were virtually non-existent for it about... It was remarkable. They for about a 15-minute period. Just was, clearing it long in the 55th oh. minute. It was, it was a bizarre. And, I would, and, and obviously, Eric Ten Hag, and we saw his team at Ajax, you know, will want to play a far better style of football. And you wonder what the recruitment will, will lend itself to, you know, if he will be able to bring in the kind of players that are going to dominate possession. And he can build on that. Because I thought at times, you know, against the better side on the day, Manchester United, you know, all right, it's Newcastle. They are a good side. They're a very solid side. They didn't offer much. And it's not like Manchester United ran out 4-0 winners, you know. It was, in a way, I was try- I was saying afterwards, it's not necessarily fortunate that Manchester United won the game, but there were just a couple of key moments that went in their favour. One is a set-piece goal, which really Manchester United, until that point in time, weren't the dominant force in the game. They get a free kick Rashford along the touchline, which wasn't really that clear, looked like he got a touch. Okay, it's a free kick, gets whipped in, free header. You know, if Newcastle defend that set piece better, Man United don't score probably in the first half because they would, you know, change the mood, if you like, inside the stadium. And Manchester United capitalised six minutes later through a deflected goal. And then at that point, you're like, well, it's a mountain to climb for Newcastle. What disappointed me about Eddie Howe and Newcastle in in the second half in particular was they were still, I mean, five minutes to go trying to play football, working passes and passes and passes. I'm sitting there and I'm like, you're still Newcastle, you're still kind of underdogs, you're definitely 2-0 down, I can see the scoreboard, so when are we launching it, lads? When are we getting Botman in the box? When are we getting Burn in the box? When are we going direct? What's the point in having two strikers on? Isak's a big guy, like, guys... We can't keep passing it short. I mean, Trippier was the only one trying to cross it in, and I was just screaming, Eddie, go direct. You've got absolutely nothing to lose at this point in time. You were screaming that, were you? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, listen, I'm a fan of football. You know, what can I say, first and foremost? No, but genuinely, you know, I was sitting there going, is he going to go to wing-backs? Is he gonna, he's going to have to change the game somehow, and I know he obviously brought on a second striker as soon as he could, but for me, you know... You've played 80 minutes. You're not passing through Manchester United. So what's plan B? But what's plan C? What's plan D? And ultimately, surely they thought, what are we going to do if we're two goals down with five minutes left? And it wasn't going to be play the same way we've played for the other 85 minutes. I mean, there must have been another plan and we never saw that materialise. Cause some chaos. I mean, seriously, you're but- shooting towards your own fans like... Get it in there. It's Newcastle. Stick you know, it in the mixer. Get no, it up. I, no, but I agree, I agree. And that's but there's some there's something about Newcastle of late that's kind of hinted at, to that, hasn't it? They've they've drawn games in the Premier League where they've been left a bit frustrated. Bournemouth, West Ham, and that lack of a plan B has been evident. What Eddie Howe, I'm sure, would say, and it's kind of obvious in his um, quotes that Martin Hardy's written up this morning in his kind of piece that again links to a next phase almost. How saying kind of well but pretty bluntly some of these players won't be back to Wembley we might be brackets hopefully I will be you he know, didn't say uh, that funnily enough he, did, he, he <laughs> didn't but it was heavily implied was, I felt yeah. I, I, it was interesting to me you know the kind of we've talked a lot about like managerial PR of late with other managers I found it fascinating that immediately after the final it was like some of these guys aren't good enough you know we need to lift it and the Im- implication being I know what I need to do I can do it keep me in charge we're going the right way just get me better players because that's what he would say to a plan B isn't it that, that ultimately that the starting 11 has been incredibly strong and effective at the plan A that he set out to do but when it comes to breaking down a Manchester United side that's full of experience and also Ten Hag as well he just it was nakedly obvious wasn't it he stuck on McTominay Sabitzer even stuck on Maguire for the last five it was proper come on then break us down we're just going to sit on 2-0 how would just say I need more players I need better players yeah I wonder whether he's kind of looking at it thinking how this season could potentially unravel in the next 
few months. And the reason for that is because football does tend to be, and especially management, is all about context and timing. Remember when Brendan Rodgers, Leicester were going for the Champions League positions and flying high and then the season comes to a, a a bit of a crashing end and similar with uh you know look at Arsenal are, are doing so well now but last season when it all unraveled towards the end there was a real negativity around around the club you just look at the form that Newcastle are in at the moment and the games they've got to come I can see them falling away a little bit from the top four. And that, that at the beginning of the season, finishing in the Europa League would have been absolutely fine. That would have been success. It would have been progress, of, especially because they haven't invested quite as heavily as we might have expected them to. But at the same time, I think Tom's right. That is maybe why Eddie Howe has made this point, hit it at this timing to say, essentially get to the summer, invest in the right players, and and then we will progress. See, I, I thought there would have been a much stronger air of positivity about Newcastle at the full-time whistle, and I was quite surprised by it, actually, because, the, like I say, the fans were so magnificent. It was one of those where you thought the manager would just be turned around to the players saying, look at this, what a football club you play for, what a group of fans. We haven't you know, given them what they wanted today. Let's make sure we get back on it in the Premier League. Let's make sure we get into the Champions League. Um, because he even said, you know, getting to the final has affected our league form. You know, we tried our best as a coaching staff not to let the players be distracted. And he said, but clearly it has distracted us. And I thought, wow, this is the moment that I think, all right, you haven't won the game, but you can still harness everything good about what happened at Wembley from a Newcastle perspective to say, right, we need to be back on it in the Premier League straight away. We can't allow it. We cannot allow this disappointment to affect us anymore. And I saw the players in tears. And obviously, you know, a lot of these players dreaming of winning a trophy in English football. You know, it's one of those to say, you know, chin up, we'll be back. We're playing well. We're a strong team now. Um you know, it's it's a, a difficult game against Manchester United. You can lose these matches, you know, but ultimately we are here going toe-to-toe with Manchester United at Wembley Stadium in front of, you know, 40, whatever, 40,000 of our fans. Like, we need to be back here again soon. You know, I didn't, it didn't feel like it was about harnessing. It Like, it felt more to me like they'd reached the FA Cup final. And it was almost like a, a very much end of season rhetoric. Like, mm. instead of, by the way, we've got a massive portion of the season still to go. And how do we build on getting to the final of the Carabao Cup? It didn't, for me, there wasn't enough of that. I think he was throwing forward more into the future rather than looking to the rest of the season. Yeah. I, think, I think Tom's right. It was, that kind of, it's a, it was an opportunity to say, we, we, we've seen our limitations today. We've seen like how far we've come, but how far we've still got to go. And that's a broader conversation than just what they're going to do for the rest of the season so I think I think Tom's right I think he saw that as an opportunity to say look we've come a long way we've done some really good things here this was a, a special day for the club but we don't want to be seen as the plucky underdogs we want to be back here regularly like in the future yeah. and this is what needs to happen for that to happen but for me you know you look at the Premier League table that's the thing and I'm going well, well, City got... next as well aren't they yeah, yeah. but this is, this is it so for me I'm thinking uh, you've got a game next week that you need to win, basically. You need to win your games in hand to be back in the top four. And that means that you cannot dwell on this. You know, there's no point talking about the summer. There's no point looking too far ahead. You know, okay, massive cliche, but the next game is the most important one. So for me, I found, you know, look, they're but disappointed. Before, they're, there's they're a disappointed. public and private sort of conversation, yeah. aren't there? I'm sure that that's what will be discussed behind closed doors. But he's he's trying to paint a different picture in, in public and to the fans and probably to the owners of the club still fantastic support for Newcastle you know great to be inside the stadium to see it just wasn't to be of course a first Wembley visit since 1999 in the FA Cup final same outcome 2-0 defeat to Manchester United still without a major trophy since 1969 and without a domestic major trophy since the FA Cup back in 1955 um, but yeah, I think it was a, a good day for Manchester United. I agree with you, Gregor. I don't think the dynasty is quite there yet. And I'm intrigued to see where Manchester United go in the future, particularly if they have new owners. But I do, I do, I give all the credit to Eric Ten Hag, to be perfectly honest. You know, they, they said I was crazy. 
you know, I know he's a club legend, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, but what's it taking? A few good signings, a half-decent manager, we're back to winning trophies. You know, glory, glory. You just uh, can't keep us down, can you? you can't move keep, on. You can't keep a good football team... <laughs> Can't keep a good football team down, can you? Uh, but yeah, look, best of luck to Newcastle United for the rest of the season. Sad for their fans, but they made some great images and hopefully they had some great memories across the weekend. Uh, after this, we will be back talking about the Premier League and huge pressure on Chelsea. Well, I say there's huge pressure on Chelsea, but um, same old story, isn't it? Graham Potter... And the Blues have now won just two of their last 15 top flight matches. Um, They sit 14 points off the Champions League places. I don't think there's much point talking about them in reference to that anymore. After their 2-0 defeat at Tottenham Hotspur this weekend, uh, Tottenham four points ahead of Newcastle having played two games more. Tom Roddy, you were at this match and um, it's the same question we ask every single week. How long can this situation go on at Chelsea? It's funny because you kind of go into these these games like Spurs and think he could lose this. It'll be fine. Uh, they will they will still persevere with it. But then in the moment, you actually think, I wonder if he is in trouble here. But I'm now looking at the morning of uh, Wednesday next week. And the reason for that is because if you get to that stage and the night before... Chelsea are out of the Champions League. They face Dortmund on the Tuesday night. They're one goal down. And that morning, they could be out of the Champions League. They're already out of the FA Cup. Uh, obviously, the League Cup's gone. And you said, Hugh, about n- not looking at the, the the top four being 14 points off it. But it's it's important in context because they are so far off it. Potentially, their season could be over on Wednesday morning and that is the moment where the resolve of these owners to persevere with Potter to believe in Potter will be most tested and the problem is Borussia Dortmund that that game is is very is very winnable they're one goal down Dortmund aren't the best team in the world at all but in order to even draw level, in order to go to extra time, they need to score a goal. And they've got one in the last six games. They, 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 right now, they don't look like scoring. And they did not so long ago uh, at, at West Ham. They, they, the only goal they scored in, in February, they looked really dangerous. Actually, in Dortmund, they looked really dangerous too. But the thing that I've noticed is this confidence being knocked and and it is a little bit of a domino effect because everything looked so close to clicking two weeks ago and then it's unraveled very quickly and the reason for that is because at Southampton they make I think it was six changes to the team and and it was a really woeful performance and the the pressure has mounted massively and they go to Tottenham with this, the the uh, in in bracket in um, quotation marks star players back in the in the lineup, and they just they they look mentally fragile because any setback now they seem to really suffer. Thiago Silva going off was the the was the spark for that yesterday. Uh, it was seen at West Ham when West Ham equalised. And they just don't seem to be responding very well. They don't seem to have much character. And that's not hugely surprising. It is It is a basically a, a totally new team. It's a new manager. It's a new club, really. There's overhaul in every single department. So none of this should be a massive surprise. The problem is that history tells us it's not acceptable at Chelsea. I mean, before they played Dortmund, they've got a home game against Leeds United. Uh, We remember the sounds of that defeat at home to Southampton at the final whistle. You you can't contemplate that they will lose against Leeds next week and he survive, can you? Well, they've also got Leicester and Everton, the other side of the Dortmund game. And I was kind of thinking yesterday after the Tottenham defeat, with all the things Tom said about them looking so kind of directionless, um, and a Chelsea supporting friend of mine put it very aptly. I, he said that it's like watching a team who are playing like that feeling when you're trying to run in a dream and you can't. 
And I thought that was kind of very, <laughs> very accurate. That's a horrible feeling. Alison's not even here. And <laughs> I, we're know. Getting, <laughs> I know. I know. We're exactly. getting these kind of metaphors. Well, unbelievable. Someone, someone's got to step in. Um, <laughs> but no, I thought that was really accurate because they just looked so lost and directionless, but like kind of they were trying. You know, Zhao Felix, I thought, had all the kind of desire and running around, but it all just looked a little bit like headless chickens at times. So I was kind of thinking yesterday, will they have this moment of, okay, well, we've got a Champions League knockout tie, but we've also got three games where you'd kind of think these are chances to win. This is actually a great little run for a new manager, for a change, for that little bounce. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. I think Tom's probably right that they'll give him the Champions League game, but those league fixtures as well, not just the one before it, but the ones coming up after it, you're thinking they've got to show something in these games. Just to say quickly that um, it's not. I don't. I still, right now, I'm. I'm not certain that going out of the Champions League would end it for Graham Potter. Partially because, uh, because of recent history, I think the fact that Mikel Arteta has done what he's done at Arsenal, gone from the brink, being right on the brink on Boxing Day uh, last. To two years ago to now being leading a Premier League title charge I think the owners and board will look at that and, and add that into the context of thinking whether part ways with Potter or not It's fascinating, he mentioned it that as well in his press conference um, Tom Allnut wrote that up in his, in his piece from the game about Potter referencing Arteta and when you think back to the points we've just discussed with Eddie Howe and you're a kind of your own manager PR is they're all they're all fighting for their jobs, aren't they? Really, they're like think of anything I can say that might reframe the mm. conversation in the media and within our fans that might make the fans go, well, you know, Arteta did it. But I do think there's also a willingness around Graham Potter that there that I don't I'm not sure any other managers would be getting. Not potentially like a foreign foreign manager who we didn't know beforehand. There's a kind of we all like Graham Potter, don't we? Everyone likes Graham Potter. Chelsea fans increasingly don't, though. No, they increasingly don't. But, I, you know, that, that that does form part of the kind of fury around managers when they eventually lose their jobs, that everyone starts kind of turning. And I, it doesn't feel like that as yet. E- e- even my friend who kind of came up with that analogy as a Chelsea fan hasn't been as kind of like, ah, oh, he's got to go. He's never said that at any point. And I feel like that's purely just because it's Graham Potter. You know, we've got a, a reader poll in um, Tom's articles on the site at the minute and 6,000 votes saying, you know, should he go or should he not? There's 55% should he should keep his job. I'm sure mm, maybe, m- maybe a load of them are West Ham and Tottenham fans who are <laughs> enjoying having a good laugh. But generally with our reader polls, it does seem to kind of, you know, it's football fans answering it in a genuine way. So it's fascinating that, you know, that, that seems to be the mood to me. Yeah, look, I, I kind of agree with Tom, uh, Roddy, that... Um, the Dortmund game after that, we'll, we will learn a lot. I mean, if he's if he if they go to the Champions League, if they don't get a positive result against Leeds, as he said, the season's over, and it's kind of are we gonna are we willing to let the season just drift and give him the summer to to put his own kind of uh, you know fingerprints on this on the squad because there's nothing else much to say about Potter and his situation. It's like just becoming more and more apparent that. Near half a billion pounds that's been spent on the squad has made his job harder, not easier. And I still find it quite quite odd that, like, when you hear about, you keep hearing about that, and you hear they've got a squad of thirty three players or whatever it is, and then you still see Loftus Cheek playing in midfield. You still see him playing Koulibaly, Ziyech, uh, who was just about, you know, he was in Paris. He was he wanted to leave, yeah. and he nearly did leave. And he's I think he started every game since. Yeah, and like, he's been poor. He's been poor. So, really poor. So what you know, I think that probably tells us something mm. about the players that have come in and not their qualities, but like that it's it's no mean feat them settling and being ready to play in the team in his view. It's the hard it's it's, it's a hard job. And I know that's not like you know, you don't want to break out the violins for the Chelsea manager <laughs> and for someone, as I say, who everyone else you know, fans generally speaking will look at a squad who just had an unprecedented amount of money spent on it and think, you know, how is he still in a job? But it's made his job harder. We have to kind of acknowledge that. Just yeah. one one final point to make is that um, they, I kind of referenced it earlier in that they did seem like they were getting close to clicking, and which was really impressive because it's a, all these 
superstar players thrown together that's not easy to do they were they were combining and gelling quite nicely and then suddenly it just stopped and Southampton last week Tottenham yesterday we were talking for a long time about how Graham Potter teams in general and and now at Chelsea are creating xg excellent really high uh, but they weren't converting those chances but now they're not even really creating them well, I was about to move on to, to uh, really how I think Chelsea should play. Like, I'm stunned that now you You're have... You're going to tell them to knock it long as well? No, <laughs> Stick no. it in the mixer? No. I think once you've got Reese James and Ben Chilwell back, this is the thing that we were talking about for so long, needed to happen at Chelsea. Look, you know, they, they don't have depth in those areas. They've been so key under Thomas Tuchel. You know, two very good players. They come back and you're thinking, right, this is it. You know, they've got to play three at the back. They're conceding goals. They're not getting enough bodies in the box. They're not creating chances. But they did plenty of that when they were playing the wing backs. And obviously, we've seen Graham Potter play three at the back so often at Brighton that we thought it might be quite a natural thing. Yes, he also played four at the back. And when he showed up at Chelsea, he said that's how he wanted to play. They now have a raft of wingers in more of a 4-3-3 shape. You know, the likes of Sterling, they've got Mudrick in. Uh, they've brought in the likes of Madueke. Like they've, they've got wingers now at Chelsea. We mentioned Ziyech already, but he's not really a player that's going to play wing back. So you're thinking, right, they have to play 4-3-3. But at the moment, I just don't see how it doesn't work better to play with the wing backs. To play, I've got to say it player that came off the bench at the weekend, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who is a goal scorer, and you don't score any goals, so he's probably got to play at this point in time, whether you like him or not. You've got Joao Felix, who you could even possibly play as a number 10, but if you put him alongside Aubameyang, you can get in a number 10. There's plenty of those in the Chelsea squad. Sounds like you are saying stick it in the mixer a little bit. No, I'm not saying stick it in the mixer. I'm saying... You, you're going to play. Get with, it in the box. You are going to play with wide players either way, but I'm saying allow those wide players to be your wing backs rather than your wingers. I think uh, the w- uh, your, your wing back point is is valid, but mm. Aubameyang. I mean, uh, you don't we score. Said last Gregor, week, you don't score goals. You can't leave a goal scorer out. You can if you, you quite don't because score it, goals. And I mean, I'm not saying you don't win games. I'm saying you don't score any goals, mate. You don't not, score any goals. They're not creating the chances. That was Tom's point, and I think nah. you know. But, the, but you always look. You always look to the player who's on the bench or in the stand and say, "There's your. There's your." The, the piece of the puzzle that will solve this. Yeah. And Camera we've said, that about, we've said <laughs> yeah. that about Aubameyang so many times and he's not done anything to impress in the team. So, like, so, 13 so, games. so, so here's over. my question then, who has? Uh, well, but, but, whoa, 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 whoa. Go on, who, who has impressed you in that Chelsea team that you think this player deserves to play ahead of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang? Joao Felix, I'd Felix, play Joao yeah. Felix. Yeah, I, mean, I, I would start him Mug- too. Havertz, terrible. Sterling, I'd play. Ster- Sterling. Done nothing. Done nothing. I don't think... It, I, has, I agree with Gregor. Like... It, what, however many questions, the answer is never Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Not anymore. It has been. Look, he's been a good player. He was a good player for Arsenal for a He was a good player time. for Barcelona but a, a year reason, ago. There's a reason he's had like three transfers in the space of 18 months or something. And I think Aubameyang is not the solution. I, I, I have an element of sympathy for Aubameyang because he joined Chelsea and then yeah. for Tuchel yeah. being you know that reunion and then basically the morning after his first appearance back with Tuchel at Chelsea the manager he's essentially joined for is given the boot I agree he's 13 games 13 appearances he's made and not scored for Chelsea he's 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 not a goal scorer right now uh, he may have done in Barcelona with a point to prove but I haven't seen it in Chelsea appearances even when he was scoring a few goals at the beginning he plays on the periphery of games and I don't think he suits the way Chelsea want to play and actually probably Potter wouldn't have him there if he could help it he probably sees him as a as a as a distraction why did he put him on the bench and why did he bring him on then probably because of in a in a way of what you said he feels he, he feels that he has to yeah, well, there is an element of desperation there, yeah. Plus, but, keep, keep them part of the, the group, part of unity. Hmm? Like, you don't, I don't think, we've seen what kind of uh, fuss it can make when Aubameyang's cast aside and made to train on his own or whatever it is. I think if you can avoid that, then do so. You, you just need a striker. No, you need to go around the circles here. Look in, your, look in your squad and think if I can get one of these players firing in the forward line, who's going to score more goals? So if you get Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang playing to his best, yes, it's a huge if given what we've seen over the last year and a half. But if you can do that, 
he has the potential to score more goals than any of their other forwards. Right, but that's a fact. Right, but Potter, again, like people can talk about whether Potter should be in the job or not, but I think we should give Potter the benefit of the doubt who sees him every day in training, whether he deserves to be playing. Or well, not for Chelsea. well, if you're getting results, you get the benefit of the doubt. If you yeah, can't I, score, why, why, why would a manager whose team score no goals get the benefit of the doubt, Gregor? Because he's the Chelsea manager. Yeah, but but. And we're sitting here just pontificating about... What, no, but what? You're, you're saying he deserves the benefit. I, I agree with you in that he knows much more than we know about what is going on with his squad and how they train every day and who has the potential to go out on a Saturday and perform. I agree with that. But he's on the verge of losing his job if this continues. He needs something. He needs something. So for me, it's like, well, listen, he can, he can, he can continue to do the same thing that hasn't worked... Like, uh, he can keep doing that if he wants to. He'll end up getting fired. He has to do something now. Drastic to change around the fortunes of Chelsea. That's all I'm saying. I'll leave it there. Anyway, let's talk about Stuart Atwell, who comes up on this podcast very rarely. I hate to name referees, but I'm doing it this week because it was odd. He gave Hakim Ziyech yellow for a challenge on Richarlison. He was then advised to upgrade that to a red card by his assistant referee, and he did, showing the red. VAR then advised Stuart Atwell to take a look at it on the screen and when he viewed the incident he decided to overturn the red and give a yellow which seemed to be perfectly honest like the right decision because Hakim Ziyech clearly tried to push Emerson Royale on the shoulder his arm then kind of rides up into his face so it didn't necessarily mean to make contact with the face it's a yellow card but what really got me is that after the foul, before the incident had happened, Stuart Atwell ran over with his yellow card out of his pocket. He was clearly about to book Hakim Ziyech for the foul. So I found it very weird that that yellow card was never given, but the yellow card was given for the push. No, 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 I don't, I don't think that was... The reason he had the yellow card out was for Kai Havertz, and that was there was a bit of... Um... Uh, confusion on the at that moment I'm there was plenty right of confusion in the, at that <laughs> moment and, and but uh, of why Havertz got booked and it was because the the kind of the melee is because Ziyech barges him and then he gets up and they square up and all of that but it's actually sparked by Havertz kicking out in clearly in frustration that's i think what he's going to book that's why he's got the yellow card out and he does book Havertz. I and, see. and emerson royale ran in mm. with like a shoulder barge which then was what the push came from i mm. agree with you it was incredibly confusing but i actually think right stuart decision. atwell deserves huge too. huge credit for not only getting the right decision but also the putting in something entertaining in this game which is absolutely <laughs> abysmal honestly i was watching it and like it should have come with a bit of kind of comedy music in the background. Because it was a moment where he's walking around with that yellow card, Hugh, going, right, who am I booking here? Hang on, where am I going? But he yeah. got it right in the end. And, like, mm. it took a long time and it was slightly farcical. But fair play, he kind of went back and looked at it and was like, no, no, I'm going to get this right. The, the one, only thing I would say is that it is another piece of sample evidence for improving the communication process and I did a story last year I think it was now about how IFAB are looking to bring in a Formula One style uh, communication of, of what referees are saying so you'll hear little snippets and that's what we needed yesterday we needed to hear a little snippet of why Stuart Atwell was doing what he was doing why he was giving the red card, why he was then going over to the monitor and how they reached that conclusion. And then we we might be sitting here going, wasn't that great yesterday? Yeah. I like what F1 do, but they obviously cherry pick what we hear. Mm. I don't want those that run football to cherry pick what we hear when it comes to decisions because, you know, it would. we might be even more confused is what I'm saying. Yeah, I'd just be happy to get to more correct ones. And they did, so as Tom says at the end, so like... It, it, yeah, it was quite brief. Yeah, I thought like, it was To come quite back brief, after yeah. all of that nonsense, to come back and go, sorry, yeah. that was wrong. Uh, we just got to reflect on Tottenham's win. Four wins out of five in the Premier League for them now. Um, and it was a big win, obviously, over a, a, a rival. What did you make of them, Tom? How important is what they're doing at the moment in terms of their, their hopes for the end of the season? Yeah, I mean, it was... It... I didn't think they had to be that good, which is the damning side on Chelsea, but we're we're done with Chelsea. It's It's... It's um, it was impressive, and they cut. They come away from that game with a 
not a totally stronghold on the top four because I think they're, they, they've played two more games. Um, so they could lose that. But they go into a fortnight now when they can advance in the FA Cup this week. They, they should probably advance in the Champions League. And we're in a period where Antonio Conte's future will be decided and it's ironic that he's been absent for these mm. this big period and and Christian Stellini has done a superb superb job I don't think he wants it or will be looking for it anytime soon but he's done a superb job in keeping them ticking over ironically in that period that Conte's been away I think they've got a real belief in what they can do the squad has come together and even where we, for a long time we were looking at it thinking Son's off off the off the pace and he still and he still is that's why he's starting on the bench but they 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 don't necessarily need it skips form since you know in the last few weeks as well since particularly now that Bentoncourt's injured for 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 the rest of the season huge boost and a great moment for him as well mm-hmm. although i have to say like uh, said before the game yeah Kepa's suddenly looking like a little boy in a big goal again like uh, i know it was it was a great story to see him his sort of renaissance after such a difficult chelsea career but uh, and even the even the second goal, like you know, I, I wouldn't say it was entirely his fault. Enzo kind of tried to clear it after he blocked it initially, but he could have caught the ball. Mm. Like so, yeah. I would say essentially, although there were minor things like marginal things, he, he was at fault partially for both goals. On that second goal, I think it was as we've talked about in, in our coverage this morning. It was the marking in the in the box that was part of an issue. I think Raheem Sterling was on Harry Kane, and Mason Mount was on Eric Dyer, which not I'm not sure that's the right matchup. But brief, very briefly, going back to Oliver Skip. Tom's talked about the future of Conte, Tottenham. Where are they going? Do any? I I think Oliver Skip's a very good player, but I don't know whether he's like a top six midfielder for Tottenham going forward. And maybe in that role we've talked about in midfield, they've looked light at times this season, very reliant on Kulusevski and then Bentoncourt. Tom, do you do you see him as a future Tottenham superstar, or is it a little bit more like say? Scott McTominay at Manchester United where he can be a good squad player but he's not he's not your answer to your problems. I don't think many players in 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 that position tend to be superstars but I I think he has the potential. He's only just 22 so it's it's a really important time for his career because he went to Norwich on loan and was just he was a superstar there. He was the reason they went up they got promoted that season and then you saw the difference in quality when when Billy Gilmore goes there and he sort of had a bit of a a little bit of a setback this season really because they've gone in and invested in Bentancur and Eve Basuma and if you're skip looking at that you're thinking well I'm not I'm not the future of this club so and the problem is at a club like uh, Tottenham where the manager has changed so frequently we hear players talk about it I've got to impress that guy now I've got to and I make progress with him and then I there's a step back and I've got to do it all over again it's that instability which isn't healthy for players who are developing yes I think he can do it at Spurs will he I, I don't know right now instinctively I would put him in the McDominay camp but mm. he's got a chance now it's up to him if he gets that opportunity and he gets a run in the Premier League, he's playing for a big side with good players. He has the ability as a young player to make a leap. Yeah. The, the other thing is that um, because seen this ever since Conte took charge at Tottenham is that he wants he wants a midfielder who can who can pass the ball. And the I'm, I'm not sure Skip is is that level of passing. Um, and Hoiberg isn't either, so that's going to be a, a but it's whether it's whether really he can be an able deputy to Hoiberg or one day take that role himself. We don't think Skip is going to be you know the deep lying playmaker in Tottenham's midfield, no. but it's whether he can be the ball winner, it's whether he can be the energy um in the engine room really and I think he can do that, but you know I, th- I think about players who obviously as a man United fan who kind of surpass their talents, you know you mentioned Scott McTominay, but immediately I think of a Tom Cleverley or a Darren Fletcher. I mean, Darren Fletcher, okay, and Tom Cleverley, probably better all-round footballers. But, you know, Cleverley leaves Manchester United. He's not the same player. Fletcher leaves Man United. He's not the same player. They're in a club that worked for them, given their histories with the academy. And I'm just saying that Skip might fall into that category mm. at Spurs. They might get more 
than the sum of his parts, yeah. <laughs> if you like. So, um, look, it, it was great to see him score that goal. Great. I was watching match of the day last night. You know, just looks like a genuine kid, you know, speaking um, on the touchline afterwards in his sliders. So uh, <laughs> I enjoyed that. And, yeah, great afternoon for him. OK, all right. Up next, we'll talk about the bottom of the league. And we'll hear about Harry Haddock at Grimsby. If that's a name you don't know, stay tuned. Well, the bottom of the table, I think, at the moment is worth examining each and every week. Uh, three clubs to focus in on. Uh, Danny Ings, first two West Ham goals. They beat Nottingham Forest 4-0 at the London Stadium. Leeds move out of the Premier League's relegation zone as Junior Firpo's second-half goal gives them a crucial victory. 1-0 over the bottom club, Southampton. It was Javi Gracia's first game as manager. Ruben Sellers' first game as their new permanent boss. And Everton lost 2-0 to Aston Villa at home. Ollie Watkins has now scored in five straight league games for Villa. But we start with that big win for West Ham. Who who would have thought it, going back to my point on Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, found a formula by putting a finisher in you, their team. You're not claiming this. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. How did they? How did David Moyes manage this? He put someone who likes to score goals in his team. And guess what? He didn't play that well. And guess what? He scored twice. Well, Good finishes as well. Well done, Danny Ings. It definitely is credit to the Game Podcast for this one, but it's not credit to you, Hugh. It's, uh, David Moyes has definitely listened to Tony Cascarino, who on last week's show talked about it being a slightly strange decision to sign a goal scorer like Danny Ings and not put him in the team. But he did that. And we, there were stories beforehand about this being the second time this season that Moyes was going into a game thinking if he loses, he could be out. Gary Jacob wrote, in the, the times this week about that being the case and but so as a manager he reacted he he changed system he played players who haven't always had a consistent run like Ben Rama um he also moved Paqueta into a more advanced role Gary Jacobs done some analysis this morning uh, on the website about that and it but it meant that it was all kind of geared towards Danny Ings getting in the box and getting service and that's where the two goals came from i think Ings himself deserves a lot of credit particularly for that first goal he kind of starts the move and then just the, the the striker's desire to get in in and around the six-yard area to finish that chance is massive. What will be interesting now is whether Moyes continues that, so continues with that system, continues with players like Ben Rama going into future games. Because obviously, you know, they were at home to a team like Forest, who were also down uh, in the bottom half of the table with them. Kind of it was a gimme in that sense. To, to go for it a little bit more. Whether he'll keep doing that is what will probably decide whether they kind of just keep yo-yoing in and out of form. Seems like it was a bit of an odd game though. I mean, I think in Bill Edgar's column today he said it's the first time in a decade there's been a 4-0 when it was 0-0 going into the final quarter of the game. Like, it was West Ham deserved the win. They were dominant. They had you know, 18 shots to 8. Forrest looked like they were off, off, off their game a little bit. But it was a kind of barnstorming end mm. and desperately needed for Moyes as well. Moyes needed that very much and he needed goals we've spoken so so often about the teams down there who are struggling for goals desperately and as you say you know whether he listened to the game or not Danny Ings <laughs> Danny Ings was the answer on the day and as he said afterwards he was even a bit upset he didn't get more um, because in that, that kind of final period of the game they were absolutely tore through Forrest at will I'm, I'm not quite totally convinced they've turned to the corner West Ham though because of what you said Gregor about Forrest they 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 were they were actually awful in that yeah. final period they surrendered midfield stood off West Ham also with it, putting a goal scorer into the team Steven Gerrard at Aston Villa had two great goal scorers Danny Ings and Ollie Watkins it didn't work out and that was because those two players working together didn't didn't just didn't gel it didn't it didn't suit a system Whereas I think it does at West Ham with Danny Ings on his own. I think Ollie Watkins is doing well at, at Villa now without that tr- trying to crowbar them together. They've got, West Ham have now got six games in 19 days. So I hope for David Moyes' sake and West Ham's sake it is a, a turning point. But this is going to be a real tough period for that squad. Danny Ings obviously stole the show, but Jared Bowen, I think, was the was the star. He... And invariably, when West Ham win or when they, you know, they play at the best, Jared Bowen is at, Jared Bowen is at his best. He's, I think, he's still the most important player. Like Ben Rama, as Tom mentioned, he's kind of played in fits and starts. He's, I think, David Moyes pulls his tears his hair out over him sometimes because he knows he's got so much quality and he can be a great player for them, but doesn't do it on a consistent enough basis. 
Jared Bowen has not been the same Jared Bowen this season that we've known, uh, you know, in previous years at West Ham. But still, he was he was he was in great form in this game, and and I think, you know, having him playing at his best is going to be really important for the rest of the season now. Okay, good win for West Ham United. Uh, Elsewhere, in terms of the bottom of the league, massive, massive win for Leeds United. Um, Javi Gracia was praised for being a calming influence uh, for Leeds United. It was a pretty frantic game, though, in the end. Um, Is that how they're going to play, do you think, from here on out? A bit, I mean, it's, it's frantic leads, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I half thought, um, I thought Grassi was an excellent appointment. I think there's a lot of revisionism that can come in with former Watford managers, just the assumption that they're all rubbish, but it's just purely because they all get sacked after a 18 months or so. But what he days. did at Watford... Huh? Days. Yeah, <laughs> days, <laughs> days, weeks. He's the longest servant of the Pozo era. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And he got them to an FA Cup final and a mid-table finish in the Premier League in one his fourth season. So I thought perhaps we were going to get a bit of a calming effect but it doesn't seem to be the case you know it was absolutely frantic it was like they'd won a cup final when they scored so I mean maybe that's smart from him because to unpick all that at Leeds would take probably years to get them to be calm so you you just don't know we've said it with West Ham are they going to be consistent maybe with Leeds with this new manager they might be but they will seem to be consistently frantic it's the, it's the quickest uh, <laughs> it's the quickest uh, a new manager bounce started and a new a new manager yeah. bounce ended yeah. in one, in one yeah. game uh, it, on the Southampton side it who knows Ruben Sellers he could end up being the the Jose Mourinho who steps out from the, the from the back and becomes a great manager but my immediate thought is that it's Again, it's a little bit of maybe immaturity from a new ownership. I, I thought the Nathan Jones appointment, uh, it's easy in hindsight, but it, it's, it was strange for a club like Southampton in a period they were in. And even now, it, it they they beat Chelsea from a James Ward-Prowse free kick. Um, and I don't... I, I, I'm, it's, it hasn't convinced me that they'll stay up. Whereas I look at... Leads and think that they have enough quality in their squad. I actually don't think it matters too much with uh, whether Ruben Sellers is going to be great or not. I don't think Southampton have enough quality. I tend to agree, to be honest. I just think there's so little between seven teams at the bottom. And a lot of it is to do with goal scorers. And Tom mentioned their War Post free kicks have been kind of saviours for Southampton, really, in a number of games. Um, and Leeds' goal was really, I mean, it was it was well worked move in the in the corner, but the finish was like, uh, I think it was Bednarek kind of stood like tried to get out of the way, and the goalkeeper was was unsighted and still should have saved it. It was really scrappy finish. I quite liked that, uh, Firpo and Firpo's interview after though he was great English and like really kind of bubbly and saying. I used to play as a striker and then I was a left uh, left left winger and then a left back and I thought that, that makes sense because you're not a defender. <laughs> <laughs> no offence, but... <laughs> but uh, I was pleased for him. Really pleased. <laughs> Who killed him? <laughs> who's, who's your seventh team, by the way? Because the point I was going to make, and I kind of already half made it in terms of the teams down there, is that you know, Leicester lost to Arsenal. Great win for Mikel and the boys. Well done, lads. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Leicester are down there only four points above Everton... Um, Palace. I know Palace yeah. fans are pretty worried about their form. I know they've got a draw against Liverpool and another awful game this weekend. Um, I've already mentioned it far more than I should have. Uh, <laughs> Forest have had a good run. Cooper's made them a bit more solid, but that was a pretty damning result. You know, who, who's your, no, se- who's your no, seven? You're right. There's, you're there's right. nine, really. You're right. There? No, I would say there's even five and four. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like to West Ham and down. So you've got West Ham, Leeds, Everton, Bournemouth and Southampton. Not a great deal between them. And then you've got Wolves, Leicester, Forest and Palace. And they seem, you know, they seem a little bit bit above them. Mm -hmm. And you've got a little bit more belief that they they can string enough results together to, to, to pull clear. But I wouldn't, I'm not like totally confident about it. I think Forest could still drop back. I think Leicester have had a big boost from, from the few signings they made in January, but still. And then I was at Wolves uh, Fulham on Friday and Wolves were brilliant in the first half. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and then Fulham really upped their game in the second and it, it, they could have lost the game. I was still not totally confident enough that they're going to keep enough clean sheets and score enough goals. Sarabia so scored a goal. That's a rarity for a forward. Jimenez skewed ahead of wide. He's not scored in a year. Like It's all about 
Gulls and Wolves are really struggling for them still. I went to Fulham Wolves, so it's amazing in that stadium that we didn't bump into one another, <laughs> particularly through the press room. Yeah, I literally Greg, didn't Greg see Gregor. Gregor said he saw you and looked the other way, mate. <laughs> I got a little train back from Grimsby, actually, so I'll speak of that later. Uh, let's quickly talk about um, Everton. Um, just Sean Dyche saying that they never found the killer moment. 15 shots in the game, beaten 2-0 by Villa. Um, good chances too. A couple of them for Neil Mope, one for Alex Awobi. And we basically saw why they've only scored 17 goals in 24 league games, the lowest in the league. Are you going to make a striker point, get it in the box again? Because this is the theme. No, I mean, look, the strikers that we were talking about. <laughs> no, but in, but, with fair, in fairness, you but, know, Aubameyang would probably start Everton, wouldn't he? Maybe. Um, <laughs> you, but you do make a good point, and I think that's the counter Schoendeich argument where you're like, okay, you need to maybe put another attacking player in there because there was a few mo- I think Mopo played quite well, obviously missed some chances, but there was a moment in the um, first half where he kind of creates a breakaway on his own, gets kind of to the left like corner of the area looks up and there's no one to pass to and even then waits waits recycles waits for Dwight McNeil to overlap him McDeal puts a cross into the box and I think he was looking for Iwobi fine you know a midfielder who can score goals but then the other options were charging in at the back post Seamus Coleman and Decore you know you've not necessarily got people with goal scoring instincts there and obviously Dyche is going make a solid 4-5-1 but that that is in these games when you're playing against a team where at home maybe you'd be thinking we need we can try and get a result here. You maybe need to, like David Moyes at West Ham, put some more attacking impetus in there. Okay, all right. It's busy at the bottom of the league. We'll be revisiting this. Bournemouth, by the way, outplayed by Manchester City at home, losing four one. We mentioned Wolves drew at Fulham, Leicester beaten by Arsenal. That means six points separate Crystal Palace in 12th and Bournemouth in 19th. So there is a long, long way to go in terms of relegation. So we'll have to keep a very close eye on it. Um, Gregor, before we go, tell us about Harry Haddock. (laughs) Harry Haddock, big inflatable fish. Uh, <laughs> I bet no one saw well, that coming. Realize, no one saw that coming. They all thought it was a journeyman striker. <laughs> Someone Gregor. Well, he was actually. There was a Harry Haddock who played for Clyde, Scottish footballer back in the day. As one uh, comment, uh, comment, commentator below the line uh, uh, pointed out today to, in my piece, because um, there was just a, it was, that was the intro to my piece. Grimsby are playing Southampton in the in the FA Cup there uh, on Wednesdays. They're the lowest ranked team left. It's the first. Uh, appearance in the fifth round since 1996 I think um, and there was a little moment a couple of weeks ago where after they just got through Southampton said oh you're you know, for Grimsby this is their mascot Harry Haddock they've taken taken him everywhere to every biggest game since uh, 1989 they played uh, Wimbledon at the Old Plough Lane uh, 2000 of them were waved around in the air and Des Lynham produced one from under his desk on Match of the Day later so it was like <laughs> a nice little feature and so that's the kind of their mascot, and Southampton came out and said, "Oh, um, no inflatables allowed." So there was a bit of an outcry, a few puns, what a load of pollocks, uh, <laughs> soulless, no place, no place for fun in football anymore, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and within twenty four hours, they they realised they might have made a mistake, so they're allowed. So Harry Harry Haddock is going to go south <laughs> on Wednesday, and it's a big game for Grimsby. They've they've had a they've twice dropped out of the football league. One of which uh, you know, I helped in my last uh, year in, as a footballer. Um, uh, humble brag, well done. I was wondering get, if you're going to get back in. And Paul Hurst, is, uh, who was the manager when I was there, has since gone back after difficult time, uh, well, a good time at Shrewsbury and a difficult time at Ipswich. And I drew actually drew a bit of a parallel between mm. what's happened between him, him at Ipswich and Nathan Jones, who's obviously just left Southampton, and that two you know, managers have worked in. Uh, the lower leagues put in a lot of hard yards to get a rare opportunity uh, in a higher league albeit in the championship in Hurst's case um, and it was gone it was taken away in 14 games both 14 games that were gone uh, so he spoke about you know, how hard that is after working so hard um, but he knew he'd get another opportunity and he's gone back to Grimsby and it's a good fit and he he hauled them out of the, the National League last season at the first attempt uh, re- remarkable playoff campaign where they he beat Notts County uh, with a 96th minute equaliser and then an extra time winner. Then they beat Wrexham, obviously Hollywood funded Wrexham. That's the this, the prefix you have to give. Uh, 
in a five-four classic with a with an, an extra time winner, and then they, they won in the final against Solihull Moors with an extra time winner. So they're not short of spirit, and they also equalised to, to take Luton to, to replay in the last round and then blitzed them three 0 So um, who knows? Maybe maybe a shock in the cards and there'll be plenty of happy Harry Haddocks. If so, <laughs> I got to say, um, you guys know I love looking at a draw. And I think it is a great draw for the FA Cup fifth round, which we will react to on Thursday. But um, there's going to be some surprise names in the quarterfinals, whether we like it or not, because as you mentioned, Southampton play Grimsby, Burnley will play Fleetwood, for example. Um, you've got Fulham and Leeds. One of those will be in the quarterfinal. Bristol City taking on Man City. Tough one for them. Stoke against Brighton. Never know with some changes. And Leicester against Blackburn as well could go to the away side. So uh, hopefully some giant killings in the FA Cup, which we'll react to on Thursday. Fingers crossed for Harry Haddock and the crew that Grimsby can make it through as well. Uh, thank you all for listening, gentlemen. Thank you for being such great company, Gregor and the two Toms. Uh, remember, if you want to read some of the great journalism from the weekend, looking at the FA Cup, looking back on the Carabao Cup final and the weekend in the Premier League, make sure you check out today's game. Uh, you can get that uh, from a newspaper, of course. So pick up a paper if you pass in a shop. If not, Make sure you check it out online. You can get the Times app as well and subscribe online. Thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you on Thursday. Take care.